Over the past centuries, humans created tools to master nature and become the omnipresent gods of this planet. That was until a new type of tools was developed, hard for a common human to understand and sometimes operating fully on its own. New technologies started to resemble having a life of their own. Sounds a tad dramatic? Maybe. Welcome to Digital Domains. In this episode, we'll be exploring the relationship between humans and the autonomous technologies we've created. My name is Anna. I've studied human cognition and social change at Minerva University and have also been a decentralized technology and governance proponent over the past few years. My co-host is Nicholas Kenny. Nick is a foreign policy scholar who spent over a decade studying national security issues, including during his work for the U.S. Department of State. Together, we are on a mission to find answers to the most pressing questions within the current debates about AI and other emerging tech and expand the understanding of what it means to live in a highly technological society, both for ourselves and others. Today, we're starting with reading a book on autonomous technology by Langdon Winner, written in 1977. Stay with us for the discussion, and you will not be disappointed. Chapter 1, Reading a Book For all our listeners out there, this is a book that dates back to 1977 which is ancient history for a lot of us, um, but it actually has a timeless quality to it. And um, that's what I think I liked most about it. And I think we'll get into some of the, the concepts that I think are most useful for understanding the origins of our anxiety with respect to technological innovation, particularly AI, and kind of how to think through its effects on the political dimension in terms of technocracy, in terms of kind of the technological cultural system that all of us are embedded in and AI is just a part of. Honestly, I really agree with Nick here. This book was written over almost 50 years ago and questions and points raised there still resonate in 2024. In one of the opening paragraphs, he writes, in reference to kind of the the timeless quality of this debate and of the kind of questions that we're asking, Langdon writes, a situation in which one person after another discovers technology and announces that it's something new, when one can argue that medieval Europe was a highly sophisticated technological society of sort, involved in rapid progress of socio-technical change. There has been this kind of techno-economical social changes happening with introductions of different technologies throughout history. And then the nature of these changes hasn't really been that different. Some of the examples that he refers a lot to brought up the ideas and questions of how technologies is now kind of its own entity that replaces human and competes with human at the same level, instead of just being kind of a mere tool that enable us to do things more efficiently. So that's right. One of the main reasons why this book was so fascinating to us is because despite being written in last century, it brings up questions about agency and control that are very prevalent in our thinking about AI, autonomous cars, and other autonomous technologies that are emerging in this century. Chapter 2. Technology as its own entity. So how do we know if we control the new technologies or if they control us? For one, there's idea of handles and no, not the Twitter handles. Well, I like this idea of, of Langdon Winner's idea of kind of 
distinguishing between technology with what he calls handles, right? I don't know if you remember this in technology that doesn't really have a good handle. So he has this idea. So people appreciate this. I think, you know, we have our handles on Twitter and Instagram and things like this. But what he means by handle is like technology that humans can feel in control of that is a means to an end and like a handsaw or a pen or, um, you know, even a bicycle. But um, even once we get towards bicycle to answer your question, you know, I think in automobiles and electric grids, then we're getting into technologies that are highly complex in the sense that they don't have this handle in the sense that it's very hard for one or a few human beings to fully a understand them right and b fully direct them to the ends that they intend i think prior to ai what langdon winter gets us to see is that there are technologies out there that that really don't have this handle and ai i think is just another example of a technology potentially that doesn't have kind of a clear place. That whole assumption that people have when they engage with a new technology, when people get on ChatGPT and they're like, oh, I'm using ChatGTP for my ends and what I want to accomplish. But I think what this book gets us to see is that, yes, but over time and at scale, things like ChatGPT are actually changing society and changing you in ways that you might not notice unless you think about them. So the first criteria that we can look at in order to understand whether we have social control over emergent technologies is to look at whether we have control over the output that the new technologies are producing. And as Nicholas pointed out, with technologies like AI, it becomes more and more complicated to track whether the output we are getting is as intended, especially when it comes to long periods of time, as more and more information is being produced by autonomous technologies. And that information potentially shapes our ideas, our goals, and our desires. Another criteria we can look at is whether we understand how the technology works. Something that was really, really fascinating from the book um, he inserted definitions of what technology was um, in 1909, according to Webster's Dictionary. And back then it was industrial science, science of systematic knowledge of the industrial arts, especially those important to manufacturing. And then once you got to 1961, it became technology is a totality of means employed by people to provide itself with objects of material culture. And then today's definition is even broader. It's the practical application of knowledge, especially in a particular area, or it's a manner of accomplishing a task, especially using, using technical processes, methods, or knowledge. So it's Technology for us humans used to mean something very specific, like it was this limited and problematic concept, and now it reached this like very extreme ambiguity. Um, and he argued that the chaotic use of the word technology kind of indicates our confusion with what technology is, um, and 
it is problematic because we are then having less language to discuss the technology and how it affects us. Um, and then it, it complicates both kind of like our individual discourses and also like our political discourses. And then we try to simplify and not often in ways that are useful to us. Yeah, I I think that's a great point. And also, I th- I think Winner would also uh, agree that, that that expansion of that definition over time also is reflecting how technology is becoming so personal pervasive and kind of taken as a given and granted in our society. So the, the broader it gets, the more we just accept it and don't really think intentionally about how it's affecting our lives or how it's affecting us over time. So to sum up, the more complicated the technologies become, the more popular they are in our society, the less we are inclined to question how they work, the less we understand how they work, the lesser control we have over the outputs that these technologies are producing. Chapter 3. Technology as Power Over Nature This Baconian idea of technology as enabling humans to have power over nature. So that's an idea that, you know, I thought was really valuable to revisit because we, in modern society, we take it for granted that technology will help us control the various aspects of our natural environment and enable us to do things. Like it helps us control distance. Like if we want to um, visit friends who are far away, with the advent of transportation technology, we can do that at a farther and farther realms in shorter and shorter amounts of time, right? So that helps us control the, the, the distance in natural environment and make it less of an impediment to our freedom and what we want to do. Um, and so I thought that idea of power, because Anna, you and I are very interested in the idea of power, but I always was thinking of power between human beings but Langton Winter got, got me to think, well, wait a second. It's not just about power between and among human beings and within human society, but also how we've used technological power over time over nature. And there seems to be a technological drift or technological imperative or technological evolution, depending on which concept we you want to talk about, but that we're constantly as human beings trying to enhance that power, right? And always trying to increase our power. Nature is not just sitting there passively inert (laughs) to our uh, efforts to try to control it. It's, if you want to frame it as fighting back or reacting um, over time, because all these technologies are contributing to a certain trend in terms of carbon emissions and global warming and, uh, and all the other externalities that capitalism generates. I remember like there was a very interesting point in the book that that desire for control and the view that control is Mm -hmm. the key to survival is very Mm -hmm. like it's predominant in Western cultures, but not all cultures share this identity. Right. So we like the the Western self-identity is grounded in that desire to control environmental variables and manipulate them to our advantage. 
Um, yeah, I wish our colleague Tomer Perry was here because he he loves this question about what are non-Western. In fact, but he kind of explodes and questions the whole distinction between West and non-West. Um, but I, that question came up in my mind as well. I, and the best I could think of just right off the top of my head is I was thinking of kind of indigenous and Native American uh, communities. And, and again, this is not very sophisticated, but the idea that that there was less of this hunger to continually control nature and more of a culture of existing in balance and part of nature. Um, and maybe that's my idealism of these communities um, or my de- idealistic vision of them. And and because obviously they had tools, right? They, they had technologies, um, but those technologies, it seems to me, weren't being generated out of a insatiable desire to enhance absolute power over nature. So that desire to control our natural environment served the purpose of human survival well. But its manifestation in advanced technologies might have serious drawbacks. Let's hear more from Nicholas. I think Langdon Winter got me to see that as we extend our power over nature, human beings are part of nature, right? Whether we admit that or not, we're natural beings um, that occur in nature and technological development is moving towards more and more control over human beings. Um, So one thing, you know, I think AI is going to be used for is it's going to be used by authoritarian regimes. It already is, right, to help them control their their societies. Um, And so in our efforts to gain more and more power over nature, we're giving other human beings more and more power over humans as natural objects to be controlled. Chapter 4. Technological Ignorance in Modern Society. Do you think that that most people in Western modern capitalist societies actually fear AI or technological innovation? Any, I, I would say, or any technological innovation, I would say every technological innovation is almost always greeted with by the majority. I'm, I'm not saying there's not a vocal minority, and I might count myself among them, but by the majority with kind of unquestioning praise. Well, obviously people welcome it when when it enables them to live easier, more fun life. Um, but I think also very often people just don't care. Um, and that's one of the things that back in 1977, Langdon Winner wrote um, about he was even then when there wasn't that much innovation in, in computers and we didn't have our social media feeds and all these other ways that we could uh, spend our time on, um, he wrote that people were already kind of ignorant to a lot of the tech innovations, specifically how it works. Like they would, they would employ it in their daily lives, but they wouldn't try to comprehend Um and I think that raises a question about control and autonomy. Like if if someone doesn't like genuinely doesn't 
care did do they have like do they have a duty to learn about it in order to be free can they just like live their lives not worried about it um, yeah i mean one of the arguments i think in the books when he talks in the book when he talks about technocracy and how there's a technocratic elite by that he means like a scientific and technologically sophisticated elite who are making decisions unelected on behalf of the rest of society is that the ignorance of the rest of society is the legitimator of that elite because they just don't understand the technology and the science such that they can have an informed opinion. Um, and so should we be comfortable with that ignorance? My, you know, and should we then go about our lives and be okay with that situation? I would say for me, no, I would want to have some sort of understanding of where I fit in, in society and how uh, it's controlling me and what, what the zone of autonomy is for who I am and for my family and for my community. Um, but I think that sentiment might not be shared by a lot of human beings and that there's, there's a good portion that as, as Langdon Winter talks about, you know, kind of the technological bread and circuses, you know, they're more concerned with what are the consumer goods and consumer entertainment, um, that I can choose among. And as long as I have the choice among those different, um, entertainments and amenities, then I feel free and I'm happy to cede the rest of decision-making to, to this elite. Um, well, I think it's also just like tough to prioritize. Um, one of the other kind of points that, that the book is discussing um, really in depth is the idea that there's just becoming so much knowledge that is impossible for a human to comprehend. And we don't have good intellectual synthesis tools. Um, and I think also like, okay, assume that we establish the technology, like autonomous technology has really um, like a tremendous impact on, on the behaviors that we make, uh, on the behaviors we have, the choices we make, etc. cetera. Um, what is it like, and let's assume there's some like third party, I don't know, maybe like a think tank or like really vocal social media people that are trying to get people's attention and force them to learn about technology so they understand how uh, it's like impacting and controlling their lives. What is it like, what arguments can we employ to say that learning about this autonomous technology and its impact is more important than, for example, learning how our brain operates, which is also very much like as, as we have knowledge of how our brain operates and what kind of like uh, what constraints or um, kind of motivates our choices and behaviors at the chemical levels. Wouldn't that be something that we are trying that we should understand because it is controlling us to an impact to, to an extent and it has an impact on our agency and freedom. You know, so there's, there's, there's different varieties of arguments you can employ. And I think it's unrealistic to argue for people to learn the nitty gritty 
of all these different influences just because it's never going to be possible for people to comprehend. And how do you prioritize the kind of knowledge that people should comprehend? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a fair point. I, I agree with you that it's impossible to completely surmount ignorance in all fields of knowledge. Um, but, but on the other hand, I wonder if there's some value in the process. So for instance, just to kind of make this concrete and going back to chat GPT, one thought that as I was reading this book that came, came up again and again is, well, two thoughts. One is, okay, so chat GPT is extending. He has this idea of extension, right? This idea that technology it, you know, enhances our abilities, as I was saying earlier, to control nature by extending like binoculars. They extend our sight, right? Um, so we can see more farther away or even the glasses I'm wearing right now, right? So that's a technology that helps me see more clearly and that extends or enhances my, my ability to see. So, and that's all, po- you know, that's all positive, I think, to, to some degree, but with ChatGPT, like, what is the what is it extending? So one question would be, okay, it's extending, or or at least reducing the amount of time it takes to formulate sentences and paragraphs regarding in spe- answers to specific questions. Okay, that's good. But one thought is, isn't there value? in going through that process, like if everyone just think 10 years from now, this, the amount of people who go through the process of answering certain questions by doing the hard work of writing paragraph after paragraph, isn't there some value, particularly for a democracy of a lot of people doing that over and over again, because that's a practice that's essential to democracy's functioning because when you know you and I are part of a democratic society I have to try to convince Anna that my answer to a certain policy question is better than another one so that she supports or joins my coalition right and if I'm not very practiced at that then we could argue democracy starts to break down or you could even argue like our critical thinking breaks down because we're we're less able to like say, okay, that politician is making a speech. Yes, I agree with this part, but I disagree with this part, and here's why. Because we just we'll just ask G- ChatGPT to do the thinking for us. So I think I think one thing is we'll we'll never be able to s- surmount all ignorance, like you said. But on the other hand, isn't there some value, particularly to democracies, of going through the process of thinking? And I guess as a educator, I wonder if ChatGPT is going to make my students not be as adept at thinking because they're letting ChatGPT doing. And I'm not just talking about plagiarism or writing paper. I'm talking about just doing the hard work of perspiring through a process of introspective deep thought. So even if the abyss of technological knowledge seems dreadful and never-ending, there's still value in going through the learning process. If each of us puts a little more effort in becoming more thoughtful and analytical as a tech developer, consumer, or just a fellow human being, we together stand a chance for a more independent and resilient technological society. 
Chapter Five: How much do we need to understand in order to control technology? Let's, for instance, back to authoritarian regimes. Authoritarian regimes do not have a full understanding, as you were saying, like how brain chemistry works or the human mind. We understand very little, actually, about how the human brain works. But nonetheless, we can control. There's Been major projects of trying to control humans at scale and individuals, right?、Um, so I would say, under a lack of understanding doesn't necessarily imply a complete inability to control something. I don't think even the the most totalitarian or authoritarian governments control every aspect of society. So I don't think there. I don't think there's an absolute. There's an example of absolute power, absolute control in human history. I think there's always、um, some margin of freedom and autonomy, or randomness, if you will.、Um, and still, but still, even with that, over time, you can you can see that that regimes can control. The vast majority, or the most important outputs, as you were putting it, yeah, that are most important for them maintaining power. Chapter six: How the lack of language makes us slide into polarities. In one of the first chapters, I think he brings up the idea of <clears throat> kind of like language, in us not having enough language to discuss the the whole、mm-hmm. like. Technological innovation and control and autonomy and etc. dilemmas, and he's、mm-hmm. he's saying that is one of the main reasons for why when we have political discussions around it, we tend to slide in polarities. We talked about、mm-hmm. technology as good versus evil, and、yes. there's no like middle ground.、Um, so、mm-hmm. I think probably this book is a direct attempt to create more kind of areas and 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 different like. Categories in which we can discuss this, this questions of of tech and autonomy and human autonomy,、um, mm-hmm. without sliding into these polarities. But it's kind of hard for human brain because, like, even now at the end of the conversation, I want to kind of be able to draw a conclusion, and I want to have some kind of answer. I'm like, okay, so technology controls me, or it doesn't. Like the the complex answers are cool, and and having nuances are cool. But what what do you do with them? And I, I feel like there has to be some polarity for us to to be able to move on and and integrate these ideas in our lives somehow. I agree with you. I think po- polarity or or kind of ba- binary understandings of the world are very tempting because they're so simple and reductionist. And easy to remember, and easy to communicate. But I also find them kind of unsatisfying. Like I think part of the reason we have this podcast, right, is because what we see in the AI debates is kind of those who are extreme proponents of AI and wanted to proceed apace without any regulation, and those who are. Kind of very, very panicked and anxious about it, and want to put a pause on it.、Um, and I think that's neither one is right. And I think you know, 
what we're doing here in this podcast is trying to figure out, okay, how can we structure the conversation so it offers up alternatives beyond the simplistic AI is dangerous and existential threat and needs to be stopped and verse AI is going to save the planet. Chapter 7, Governance of Autonomous Technologies. Political scientists often think, who governs, right? Who, who, are the, who are the actors in the constitutional and political system who actually have power and authority to make decisions on behalf of everyone else? But, but he's saying, no, let's change the question. Let's say, what governs? What are the conditions, constraints, necessities, requirements, or imperatives effectively governing all of us that we just take for granted and we don't think about it. And I think this idea of, you know, these ideas of artificiality and rationality and extension and scale, like how many times have you heard people say, oh, we need to figure out how to scale this. You know, that's, that's a constant theme in Silicon Valley and in businesses in general. Let's have, let's figure out how to scale. Well, He's saying even a, even asking that question is reflecting that you're being controlled by a lot of the technological premises that govern society because you're always thinking about how to make it bigger and how to achieve um, economies of scale and that that is part of the technological society that controls us. Here's an interesting point. When we are concerned with technologies, we often think how bad actors might use them for their own goals. When we think about governance of technologies, we think about specific tech people, organizations, governments, etc., and how they supposedly have handles on the technological outputs. But what we should also consider is how technology shapes the society we live in. This desire to scale or centralize resources for the sake of efficiency is one example of a technological trend that shapes our lives. I, I remember talking about different dimensions of power and one one of the like least yeah. comprehensible one being powers that shape our like context and shape the not only like the the choices that we get to make, but also like how we think and the kind of values we have. I'm glad you brought that up. Like the third face of power, like the first face of power is coercive, oftentimes physical power backed by some sort of threat or violence. The second phase is kind of controlling the agenda about what is discussed and decided. And the third phase is like the cultural ideological face of power where you control what people take for granted, right? Like capitalism is, is more or less taken for granted. You know, there are still pockets of critique, but they're very weak and they don't have a lot of ideological following. And Langdon Winter, I think you're, you're really good to point that out because what's fascinating is, Usually we think about the three faces of power as like some human beings or group of human beings is behind each face, right? It's like saying, oh, we need to use these. And he's saying technology itself is a, maybe it's a fourth face of power or it's a a version of the third face of power in the sense that it's structuring a lot of the relationships we have and it's changing how we behave in subtle incremental ways 
over time for large portions of society. So it itself, not that it's a sentient entity, but it's autonomous. That's what he means by autonomous technology. Like technology is not as, it's not the slave we think it is. It's actually having effects on us that we just don't think about. Chapter eight, food for thought. What are we doing with the time freed by technology? What will the children born into the fully automated world do? I've read a lot of Neil Postman um, amusing ourselves to death and some others. And one question he says we should ask and we don't ask enough about technology is, okay, assume every given tool, every different given technological innovation is going to save us time, right? We can say, we can say that most technologies that somehow make things easier and by making them easier, they save us time. The question then becomes, what are we using that extra time to do? So ChatGPT is saving us time in answering certain questions. That's great. That can be helpful. But then what are we going to do with that extra time? If, if we're watching Netflix or we're, you know, we're on our Instagram accounts, I, I question whether or not we're using that extra time that ChatGPT has given us at, in the way that's most socially beneficial because it could just be making, giving us more time to do things that actually aren't helpful to people. <laughs> so one thought is if ChatGPT is going to make us less able to kind of formulate complex interacting thoughts and arguments, isn't that going to be really difficult for democracies that are premised on citizens and voters and politicians being able to do that effectively. And then secondly, setting aside the type of political regime and just looking at giving us more time, what is it we're going to use this, this time for? And I question whether or not we've, we being human beings in general, is all these technological innovations that have existed over the last 500 years, have we used that extra time very well? Do you think that kids who are going to be born into the AI world, if we could call that, you know, chat GPT is the dawn of the AI world. And I recognize that could be revised. So I'm just saying that as kind of a premise, but do you think they're going to be significantly different from previous generations? I guess it goes back to that idea that you had about how how will society evolve given that we have more time um, available to us because of automation. And I don't know, will, will the children be born into this blissful world where is some sort of like a modern utopia where they don't have to worry about the basic survival things. Everyone has like a level of um, welfare and, and or able to provide for themselves. Um, but then all they have to do is, I guess there's just going to be a lot of quests for like self-actualization and individual recognition. And I can see that being kind of their main 
pursuits in life. Um, I don't know how that will interact with with the utopian environment of the future, though. And um, I guess it also depends on what kind of systems we'll set up in addition to kind of like what, what things people culturally care about. Um, maybe for the rest of our lives, this like extreme scientific and technological innovation is going to be highly, highly rewarded, both economically and socially. So you will have kids who like the only thing they want to be, it's either like this, the artists and kind of um, creatives versus like people who are going really deep into science and, and technology and keep the keep helping the humanity pro- progress and accelerate it rate. Space exploration is probably going to be one of the, the major pursuits. Yeah, that's a really, that's kind of where I was thinking. I, I think we're going to have a generation that's going to be going in more creatives, like more into the aesthetics that, that chat GPT just cannot compete with. And, and then also, like you said, going into a level of specialized technical knowledge that is so advanced that ChatGPT really can't gather it from the data it's trained on and going in that direction. Chapter nine, our takeaways from the book. Why should they pick this book up? Um, Why, how did we, how did this book kind of help us think more clearly about AI in 2023? Um, and I, I guess I'll just start us off. I, I think it helped me the most in the sense of seeing how autonomy, right? Autonomous technology in the sense that it's not about killer robots, right? It's about technology creating certain imperatives in the sense that if if we decide to a adopt a certain technology that means then we have to commit to adopt all these other changes to society so for instance if we commit to adopting electric vehicles well that means you have to commit to adopting charging stations right or you have to commit to mining lithium for the batteries at higher rates and from parts of the world where there's a lot of conflicts and that could be, and, and there could be a lot of environmental consequences. So, um, so the point being is that when you commit to a technology, you're not just committing to that technology, you're committing to all the supporting technologies that are required and the social organization that is required for that technology to actually do what it's supposed to do. I think the most valuable and interesting thing for me as well was just the kind of timelessness of the debates um, and of the the questions and the fears and the hopes and aspirations that we had. Um, I think it was very interesting to see how um, the same kind of concerns that we had before AI come up um, and people questioning you know, what, what does it mean to have a relationship with technology? How is this distinct from us? Like 
the questions of how technology is distinct from us being asked before AI even becoming a thing, I think that tells a lot about, you know, how our narratives of technology and our values related have been evolving. And it's no, you know, no wonder that we keep kind of having the same, the same questions just being amplified by more um, kind of obvious technologies that we need to contrast ourselves with and kind of assert our agency over. Um, I also liked a lot of like really cool cultural examples. Like it brought up Frankenstein and brought up other works of art that informed our relationship with technology. I think that's going to be something that's really important because, again, we are talking about something that's just very, uh, like, of course, freedom agency. Like, you're probably going to meet someone on the street. They're going to be able to explain that. But it's still a very niche kind of a philosophical conversation. And I think a lot of the learning and comprehension happens through culture. And so I think the way that, that autonomous technologies and kind of the questions we have around them the way they're going to be portrayed in, in art and in film and in other media that, that people consume much more often is going to have a lot of impact, um, as this book has shown through like numerous examples of, of the works of art from the 20th century.